Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and I mean the cosmos, os uranos, and all of creation, down to the chromosomes in the nucleus of the human cell, are shouting it too. So Dr. J. Richards explains the Christian doctrine of intelligent design and outlines the evidence for it all around us. We all like Charles Darwin and his explanation why mutation, a stronger beak, a sharper claw, better camouflage, can help a species survive which leads over time to variation and speciation. But Darwin lived in the 19th century. He had very little idea of what the human cell was like. He had zero notion of DNA and the coding that has made us all, which would not be discovered until the 1950s. And so his theory has very little utility for explaining the origin of life, let alone the universe or the planet, or the miraculous complexities of of our world, the, the brain or the human eye, or even, or even the tiny tails, the flagella of a bacteria. It turns out you need something like 45 different protein parts, all sequentially ordered, and so coming online at the right time, first to build it, and then for the darn thing to actually work. And so that means that if you know a couple of those parts are missing, it's not gonna do anything. So natural selection can't select for it. So I hope you enjoy this talk as much as I did. Uh, and after the interview, in about an hour, you can also hear my short exchange with Father Piotr Zelasko in Jerusalem, who reflects on the war in his country uh, a month in, as the IDF is rooting out Hamas in northern Gaza, and the human cost to the innocent Palestinians Hamas is using as human shields continues to soar. So all this is coming up on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics, about history and culture. I'm your host, Chris Adinitz, and I get to ask interesting people the interesting questions, and they share their conclusions, explaining what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. My guest today is J.W. Richards. He's written, edited, or contributed to more than a dozen books, including the one we're talking about today, God's Grandeur, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design, for which he wrote a chapter called Chance and Randomness on the Persistent Conflict Between Orthodox Catholicism and Orthodox Darwinism. He's written a ton of essays and articles for important journals, and he's appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs. He's an academic and popular speaker in many contexts, and I watched him on YouTube recently and his 2008 Stanford debate with Christopher Hitchens. And it's the first time I've seen that charming champion of atheism so unhinged and riled up um, as, as he was by you. So welcome to Almost Good Catholics. Hey, it's great to be with you. I, I have a, a joke, it, it's, um, and it goes like this. There's two, there's two orangutans uh, sitting in the library, and they're both reading books, and one of them says to, the, to his neighbor, hey, what are you reading? And, and the, 
that the great primate says, uh, oh, I'm reading the Bible. Uh, it says that I am my brother's keeper. What are you reading there? And the other orange fellow says, oh, well, I'm reading On the Origin of Species by Darwin, and it says that I am my keeper's brother. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's appropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see from your bio, or at least on LinkedIn, it says that you are J.W. Richards, Ph.D. and O.P., does that mean you're a, a Dominican tertiary or, or something like well, that? Exactly. So I'm yeah. not a priest. Yeah, I'm married and have children, but uh, I'm, a, I'm a lay Dominican. And in fact, I, I've been permanently professed here, I don't know, maybe for four years. And I'm in the process of actually starting a new chapter that meets at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's fantastic. That is so cool. So um, tell us a bit about yourself. Who is who is this uh, Dominican tertiary who writes about religion and liberty and free market principles and biology and even hobbits? So, How did you uh, get to be who, where you are? Yeah, obviously, I'm someone who has found a way to um, to channel uh, ADHD into a productive <laughs> career, I suppose. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, the reality is I'm basically a philosopher, but I'm a shameless generalist. And so I really like to apply um, or sort of work at the intersection of the kind of big principles of theology and philosophy, but in practical matters. So not just doing theology or philosophy, which is kind of where I started, um, but dealing at the intersection of that. And especially at the kind of in the task of translation. So taking things that are in the academic sphere that I think are important and applying them and translating them so that people are, that are not necessarily academic specialists can learn about and, and benefit from those things. And, you know, I didn't sort of initially think that's a thing that you can do, but if I look back now over the last 20 years, that's basically what I've done is I sort of focus on those boundary issues and almost always am trying to translate from the academic into the kind of popular sphere. And of course, when you first start doing that, you think you're doing it successfully, but um, you look back later and realize, no, I, I'm still, that's sort of a work in progress. And so um, for a long time, though, I kind of focused at the intersection of, you, we could say, faith and uh, and natural science. And I moved from there to economics. And um, now, actually, after teaching at Catholic University for uh, seven years full time, I came to the Heritage wow. Foundation a couple of years ago because I wanted to fight uh, the gender ideology battle in public policy. And this was the right place to do it. But um, this this new book, God's Grandeur, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design, sort of draws on the sort of the stuff I worked on almost entirely during the first half of my career, which is that kind of intersection of faith and science. Well, I think that's very important. Uh, you may see, that's funny what you said about ADHD, but I just think it's so great to take these ideas and make them accessible to everyone. I have for at least a year now been working on turning my dissertation into a a book. And when I was talking to my editor, he's like, yeah, you know, you'll have a print run of 250. <laughs> but then you and I talk for an hour on a podcast and thousands of people around the world will, will download exactly. it. And it's so much less work and it just reaches people so fast. Uh, so I, I want to praise you for doing it. I think it's especially talking about all the gender stuff and um, it's such yeah. a valuable conversation to have. So, no, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the book. Uh, tell, yeah. tell us about God's grandeur and your collaboration with so many interesting scientists and theologians. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, this is, book was really a labor of love. I mean, I think it was in in the works for about five years and, and COVID um, broke into the middle. But it was really an attempt uh, to deal with this question of intelligent design, which people often think they know what it is, but very often mm -hmm. if they haven't read what it is, they just have a kind of stereotype in their heads, and especially a lot of Catholics. And so what we wanted to do is take 
Catholic philosophers, theologians, and scientists who work in this area and are identified in some way with the intelligent design movement and, and bring all that to bear so that we can sort of frame it in specifically Catholic terms because intelligent design as a kind of intellectual community is extremely diverse. And so there's um, certainly Protestants, there are Jews, there are people of no particular religious uh, stripe, there are Sikhs. And they're Catholics um, involved in it. And so we thought, you know, let's let's frame this issue and the stuff that we're doing, but specifically for a Catholic audience. And so the book combines says a section on theology, a section on philosophy, and a section on natural science. And the official editor is is Anne Gager, a biologist. So we really wanted the editor to be a biologist. But then when she got to some of the theology and philosophy, she it basically said, oh, Jay, I don't know I, 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 what, what happened to what I do here. Yeah. And so I helped edit those, those chapters. And then, of course, I have a chapter of my own, which is a, a fairly technical chapter. But I wanted to chase down this question of randomness in Darwinian theory, basically chase that rabbit all the way down the hole, because there are a lot of Catholic scholars that say, oh, yeah, I said, well, it's no big deal. You know, there's a way to kind of accommodate this in, a, in Catholic theology. Uh, and I said, well, okay, yeah, if you redefine the term, it works. But if you look at what Darwinian theorists are actually saying and what they mean, I don't think it really fits well with Catholic theology. So I wanted to just really kind of get that as clear as I possibly could in that chapter. Now, that's that's a great place to start. Um, you know, I uh, my student, I don't know my students, but people everywhere say like, well, you know, si follow the science or science is real and stuff like that. And the point I try to tell my students is that science is not a body of facts, but it's a, a method of inquiry. And, you yeah. know, everything we have is a theory. We have a theory. It's the best theory we got. And, you know, I think gravity exists. I think gravity works, but it's just the best theory we have for explaining why, you know, apples fall from trees and so on. So, well, yeah. And there's and there's a difference between the phenomena. I mean, we know that things happen regularly and there's, you know, if you drop something, it falls to the ground and it's very, very reliable. Right. And so it's, it's that if we couldn't just call that regularity gravity. Yeah. OK, of course. But. If you say, okay, well, so is gravity properly captured by the idea that it is a particular attractive force, or is it the warping of space-time? That's the difference between Newton's concept, right, uh, and, and Einstein's concept. And so, in a sense, they're talking about the same thing, uh, but they have totally different concepts for describing it. And then it gets even more complicated when you realize that if you study the philosophy of science, the different sciences have somewhat mm -hmm. different methods. So what the chemist does in his lab is different from what the cosmologist does when they're constructing models to describe the whole universe or the climate scientist who's trying to describe how sort of fluid dynamics on a sphere. And so there, there's a chemistry on one side is highly repetitive. You can set up an experiment. You can describe it. Somebody on the other side of the earth can do it and repeat it. And so it's repeatable. But, you know, astronomers can't sort of stick a thermometer in a star and they're not running experiments. They're trying to figure out, OK, how do we observe these things that are already there? And then when you do historical sciences, like what happened in the past or unique events, like what happened at the origin of life or the origin of the universe, that's different still. And so I just say, look, the best way to think of science is that it's an attempt to be really systematic about our understanding of the natural world um, and to be open to the evidence of the natural world and then to try to develop general ideas and theories that account for what we experience about the natural world and to be open and honest with the evidence. You know, when we're studying nature, you want to be systematic. And that's kind of, that's that's the spirit of it. And then um, when you get beyond that, though, there's actually kind of a lot of complexity involved. 
Yeah, right. Absolutely. And these last few years, I've been teaching psychology, which is a new field for mm. me, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, but it, it, it is the way we teach it right now. It depends entirely on the theory of evolution and Darwin, and oh, sure. that feels extreme. That feels inadequate to me to understand mm -hmm. the, the mystery of the brain. And and when and I and the person. The person, the person psychology right it's suke which is yeah. soul um is, is a person exactly because you know that you're just you're touching on this idea of reductionism right that mm -hmm. we should is a person finally going to be reducible to um actions that confer a survival advantage which would be the way to kind of frame it in darwinian terms or is it more to it and that's you know people confuse science with reductionism sometimes they're the same thing but they're not and then you also have the fact that humans don't walk around philosophy free or neutral right and so your theories are going to kind of mix observations and theoretical assumptions and the more you get away from say you know sort of particle physics or something the more you know the kind of worldview and the philosophical assumptions work their way into the content of the theory you get to sociology and psychology and man and sometimes it's hard to say okay what what is observation and what is assumption here yeah and um that was my starting point. And as I was reading your book, um, you added so many exciting things about um, the, the cell and DNA and co let alone cosmology. So I think you should tell us, start with Darwin. We all kind of yeah. know Darwin from high school. We all know about the voyage of the Beagle and the Galapagos Finch and the peppered yeah. moth in London. But what is missing in the narrative? What's the what's the version of the theory of evolution that has come to light in the last century, and especially since our understanding of the cell and the code of DNA, two things which Darwin had no idea about? Well, absolutely. In fact, it, it, at the time of Darwin, they didn't have uh, they didn't microscopes that had high enough resolution, and so he thought of the cell as as a quote a simple homogeneous globule of protoplasm, like a little bit of jello, right? Really simple, and so you could think of it as kind of like a Lego block or something. And so it's really easy to imagine how things get put together if you think the constituent parts are Lego blocks, as opposed to highly integrated nanoscale factories, you know, which is really to undersell what's happening inside the cell. Well, Darwin, what Darwin just to boil it down, he proposed that these things in the biological world, these structures and systems that look highly adapted to their environment, that look designed. Everybody admits those things look purposive and teleological, that they weren't really designed. They're merely apparently designed and the, that they're really the result of this process of natural selection, uh, selecting for survival advantage. So natural selection acting on random variations for for darwin which just means you got a population you know sort of water buffaloes and some are faster in their running some have pointier stronger you know uh horns or antlers you know all these kinds of things and so giving that that variation what will happen is that if a, or some members have a reproductive advantage so they survive longer during their reproductive cycle so they have more offspring then those will predominate in future generations, right? It's almost kind of a logical truth uh, that if they have a survival advantage, they <laughs> survive over the, the, their cousins and then they will reproduce. And so that basic idea of natural selection, I mean, it's in some ways, if you just define it properly, it seems it's sort of a logical truth. But then here's the kicker though, is that Darwin said that that process acting over long periods of time would give rise to all of the staggering complexity and ad adaptive complexity you see, the heart, the giraffe's neck, the mammalian eye, that's yeah, whatever, right? The whole shebang. And so Darwin's theory is a combination of that mechanism, natural selection and random variation, plus this hypothesis about life 
called common ancestry. It's just the idea that all of organisms, just as every human sh presumably shares a common ancestor and every finch, you know, if you work your way back, will have a, an original pair. So all organisms share a common ancestor spread back through time. And then all that differentiation from that first life uh, to adaptation to the environment, it's the result of this process of natural select and selection and random variation. And then in the 20th century, the random variation became to be identified with random genetic mutations. So it was combined with, uh, with genetics, which Darwin didn't really have a grasp of. That's Darwinism. Um, and you can treat all those things separately, right? You could have the common ancestry thesis, that's one claim, and the mechanism thesis. And then you could say, okay, how much does the mechanism explain? Does it really explain all that stuff? Or maybe it just explains some things. Um, but we're not usually allowed to kind of have those questions and discussions of like society. We're just supposed to sort of grant that, yes, that all that's true. And so your only option is whether you just think that's the whole story um, and God's hiding behind there, or you just forget that because you don't actually yeah. need God for the theory. So you just kind of leave that. Those are the two semi-respectable options. It's okay if you want to continue believing in God, but don't imply that there could be purpose still involved or apparent in biology. But so know, what's that, missing? What's the fallacy here? Yeah, what, what's missing is um, we don't actually have any good. It's not just that we don't have good evidence, but I'll say we don't have good evidence that natural selection and random variation can explain very much. We have good evidence that explains really small things, uh, th that variation in the thickness of finch beaks in the Galapagos, right? But we're dealing actually with variations within a pre-existing species or peppered moths or antibiotic resistance in bacteria. You get a population of bacteria, you put them in a weird selective environment inside your body, you give everybody the same antibiotic and a few of the billions of bacteria will like have something missing that prevents the antibiotic from working on them and then they reproduce, right? But all that's doing is sort of, it's calling things that already exist within a species. If you start looking, okay, give us some evidence that whole new body plans or organs or even that you can get the species itself in this way, you come up short. There's just no evidence of that whatsoever. And we have all sorts of evidence that, in fact, natural selection is just inadequate to describe that. And in a normal situation, people would just say, okay, well, this mechanism explains a little bit of the stuff in biology, but not everything. But now I would argue, well, the, so why is it so oversold? It's oversold because it's a really good designer substitute. And so, as Richard Dawkins famously said, the, the evolutionary biologist, he said, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And so if your theory is carrying all that theological and metaphysical water, right, people are going to be inclined to, to hold on to it tenaciously and to not admit that it has limits. And so those of us that are willing to just sort of say openly, eh, I don't think the mechanism really explains all that much. You know, you get attacked and called a theocrat or a creationist or something. Um, and that's just, it's, um, first of all, it's not fair with the facts. And also I think uh, Dar Darwinism ends up playing a role in kind of propping up a materialistic worldview. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's for, that's why people have Darwin fish on the bumpers of their cars. They don't put Newton fish or Einstein fish. They put Darwin fish. Yeah, but it's, it's as if, they can't say, oh, we just don't know. Because you mm -hmm. could say, I don't believe in God, and I don't know how. And Absolutely. Because then Absolutely. it shows a little bit of intellectual humility. That's right. But they and have they too much. say that privately. Yeah. I know lots of scientists that will say, oh, 
yeah, of course, this doesn't. Biologists, you yeah. know, in private symposia where there's no cameras and you're not going to tweet it. Oh, I know, of course. I mean, this is a 19th century Victorian theory. There's no way that really accounts for what's happening. We're not going to say that publicly for the most part yeah. because it's just like, oh, now you're siding with the uh, Bible thumpers, you know, and, and this kind of stuff. And so there's all these kind of weird social dynamics that make it really hard to talk precisely about this stuff. And then you have, frankly, Catholic academics like myself um, who don't like to cause trouble. And so they've come up with complex <laughs> theories for how to work Darwinism into their theology. And then if you say, why are you bothering to do that with this, yeah. the, you know, this kind of antique theory that really doesn't explain that much, they get really, really mad at you. And that's that's part of the reason I keep coming back to this because I don't think that that's um, that's intellectually honest. I, I think it's it's a kind of an accommodationist spirit that academics are inclined to, in which they just want to be careful not to cause trouble with the spirit of the age, and they come up with these fancy theories rather than just saying, "Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that." So tell us what's missing from Darwinism because we all agree, okay, you have a longer claws or a stronger beak or a better right. color, you can survive. What does it fail to explain? It, explains, to it fails to explain absolutely anything uh, that cannot easily or obviously be produced in this way. So in order for natural selection to work, it has to be able to select for current survival advantage, right? So if something in a population confers a survival advantage, it can preserve that. But it's it, we're speaking metaphorically. It's preserving. It's not intending to do that, right? The mechanism doesn't have foresight. So what happens if you find systems, say, in, in, you know, the microscopic or macroscopic scale, uh, that if all the parts aren't in the same place at the same time, they don't confer a survival advantage. Let's say you need 30 protein parts all at once, uh, and then it's going to confer a survival advantage. But if you don't have all those, it, it's, it's actually a drag on the organism. Um, and Darwin himself admitted that if we could find things like this, his theory would absolutely break down, as he put it. Well, this is what might be he, the biochemist at Lehigh University, has spent now decades pointing out. He started by pointing out examples of this at the molecular level, the so systems of irreducible complexity. But that's just one piece of evidence. But sort of anything that you cannot can't be put together in that way is going to be a limit on the Darwinian mechanism. And then Behe went on to write a book called The Edge of Evolution, where he tried to find, okay, about how much could natural selection conceivably Work, you know, sort of work on, and it ends up being basically two spontaneous mutations. So it, it's basically it works within the scale of, uh, for most organisms, the species or or, or maybe the genus in some cases. Uh, but beyond that, it's just going to hit an absolute brick wall because you, the systems are 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 too uh, too exquisite. And so whatever, however you get those systems, it's going to be something other than the Darwinian mechanism. Um, and then you can develop an argument for, okay, when actually teleology or design is a better explanation for these things, how do you do that? Well, it's not just that we say, well, Darwinism doesn't explain it well. We want to say, okay, what are the features by which we infer design? Like, what is it about certain things that cause us to reliably say that's the result of purpose? Well, what do, what do agents have that nothing else has? We have foresight. We can picture a future function or a purpose or a structure and then bring it about, right? That's that's the exclusive jurisdiction of intelligent agents. And so if you find things in the world that seem very well explained if the cause had foresight and not well explained otherwise, that's evidence of purpose and design. Now, what I'm doing is I'm reconstructing this, right? So you kind of see the way the argument works. 
the truth is that we're really good at actually doing this in the world. We don't run probability calculations and we go see Mount Rushmore to decide, okay, now was this sculpted or was this the result <laughs> of wind and erosion? We actually kind yeah. of were able to do this sort of automatically. But what you want to do uh, to get beyond intuition to kind of make the argument robust is to yeah sort of unpack, okay, what exactly is happening when we do That's so. I, I really like your metaphor of Mount Rushmore because of all the mountains in the world, that one looks different to me. And there are some where you're like, oh, that's the old man whatever the one in New Hampshire is like the old man the old granite man or something like every once in a while I look like I see a cloud that looks like this or a mountain that looks like that but when you look at Mount Rushmore like there is no way in the world that this is a a random thing and you in your in your article about chance and randomness you take the example of a flagellum which Mm -hmm. is a little wiggly tail that to me seems like that could be random but you, sure. you you go through it and you show how that there's no way that thing is random. How how did you do that? Yeah, and it's you wouldn't even have to say there's no way. It's just that gosh, um, it has the kinds of things that it, this is way 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 better explained in terms of intelligence and purpose than in, is the result of a blind process. And that's Mike Behe is the one that made this famous uh, the biochemist. And so the bacterial flagellum is this. He says outboard. It's really kind of an inboard motor. It's a rotary motor that certain bacteria <laughs> use to propel themselves with fluid. And because it's small, it seems like, okay, I don't know. It's just some Legos or something. Turns out you need something like 45 different protein parts, all sequentially ordered. And so coming online at the right time first to build it and then for the darn thing to actually work. And so that means that if, you know, a couple of those parts are missing, it's not going to do anything. So natural selection can't select for it. And so it both shows the limits of the main alternative to design, namely the Darwinian mechanism. And it has the features that we associate with intelligence, namely uh, it's constructed with foresight. If if an agent has foresight or has developed a process that takes account of that, then you can, you know, these are the kinds of things you would expect. Think of it this way. If the universe had purpose in it, if it were the result of purpose that we could actually detect by observing, these are the kinds of things you would expect to find. Mm. Uh, They're not the kinds of things you'd expect to find if the Darwinian mechanism had really explained all the interesting stuff in biology. That's that's extra how the argument goes. Right, because there, if there's 45 things that all have to spontaneously happen at once and two or three or 40 of them happen at once, nothing is selected. Not, that, that thing has no advantage and it wouldn't arise naturally in nature. Any more than like I look around and I see random mountains with Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Gandhi or Jefferson, Roosevelt, oh, exactly. and Elvis. You know, they're just, right. they're just not all over the place. They're not, and 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 another guy named Dembski, who's involved in the intelligent design movement, like he framed this. He said, "Okay, so what is it about Mount Rushmore? Like, why is that different from you know? There's this Hermit's Peak in in New Mexico, which is where I went as a kid. It looked kind of like Abraham Lincoln on his side, his face, yeah. right? You, you, there's no tempta- You have no temptation to think that's a sculpture." Well, what is it? Well, you could say, well, it's just kind of an improbable structure. And you could say that about Mount Rushmore, right? The faces are improbable. Here's the thing, though, is the pile of rocks at the bottom of Mount Rushmore are also improbable. Right? There's probably nowhere else in the universe to get that pile of rocks. So it's not just improbability. It's something else, what Dembski calls a specification. And so sort of think of it as a meaningfully independent pattern. So it's not just that it's an improbable structure. It's also that it very tightly, those faces very tightly conform to the pattern of these for U.S. presidents in a way that the clouds and the mountain don't really. They're a very loose specification. And so he says, when you see a meaningfully independent pattern, 
and very low probability combined, those are the features that that reliably indicate the presence of purpose or design. That's that's the argument. And so there's all this kind of argument and philosophical apparatus behind this stuff, uh, but it's it's easy to kind of get intuitively. Yeah, and um, another metaphor I remember hearing as a kid uh, when I was in high school was when our teachers would say things like, well, if you take a chimpanzee and give him a typewriter and let him type for uh, three billion years, he'll eventually write Hamlet and by pushing keys. And that's right. not true because no. one, one letter is 26, one another letter is 26, another letter is 26. By the time you say 26 times 26 times 26, the, oh, chances, the chances that he'll eventually come up with Hamlet are uh, He's never doing that. Yeah. Now, now, if you say, okay, there's an infinite amount of time, okay, fine, but you don't have an infinite amount of time. The yeah. universe is actually limited in time. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, it's just quite possible that he'd just keep hitting Q over and over. You know, and somebody, by the yeah. way, I can't, I have to mention that somebody actually tried this experiment with some chimps, <laughs> put them in plexiglass cages, put gave them keyboards. And guess what happened? They started banging on it, they defecated on it, you know, they, they absolutely didn't produce anything useful. But yeah. even if you sort of grant the most generous uh, assumptions there, the, the, it, it seems like, okay, we've got 13 point, you know, I say 8 billion year old universe. That seems like, gosh, that's a lot of opportunities. But even producing a single protein uh, ends up being extraordinary, just a single protein is extraordinarily complex. So that even given, sort of treat every elementary particle as a, as a computer, and a try mm. and the whole history of the cosmos, you can very quickly outstrip the, the, the probabilities, even of the kind of simplest things when it comes to life. And so it's just obvious that we need something very, very different than these very limited kind of materialistic mechanisms if we're going to account for life as we actually see it. Yeah. And I think another thing is that if it gets part of the way there randomly, that thing will not survive. Uh, that's a, no. that's a, an argument I heard from a colleague of yours by the name of Stephen Meyer, who's cited yeah. in your book. Uh, and and he said like, okay, let's say I'm sitting here by this computer and I open it up and I just start messing with it. I just start cutting a couple of wires and pouring in a little bit of coffee. I'm not gonna randomly create a better computer no matter how many times, I'm just gonna destroy the computer I have. That's uh, right. Yeah. And that's right. And it turns out what's funny is, is I, as I already said that the, the Darwin's mechanism, natural selection, random genetic mutation, it's not only that it's limited, when you actually look at the examples where it works, it's actually not cumulative. And so it's like that antibiotic ah. resistance, right? And so what you would imagine is that, okay, it's sort of adding new parts and new features, right? And it's kind of, you know, it's re-upping and getting better like you do in a video game where you get new skills. What it usually is, is what happens is that under natural selection, in a weird environment, something will break. And so it actually degrades it sort of overall, but it's, it is advantageous in that environment. And so like a bacterium in a particular selective environment where you've got the antibiotics, some of them will lose something on their surface that causes them to be immune to antibiotics. Now it turns out they're less robust in the wild. And so you're not gonna, it's just like you might prevent the police from arresting you temporarily uh, if they have to get across a bridge by blowing up the bridge, right? But that's not like a cumulative way of sort of yeah. building things by blowing up bridges. That's actually how natural selection almost always tends to work is it selects something 
that in this weird environment confers a survival advantage. And so it just turns out that it's a really, really, really limited mechanism and should not be given the kind of carte blanche that it is in biology. And it absolutely should not be being used to say, okay, now there's no evidence for design in, in nature, or at least in biology. That's just a complete overselling of, the, of what it can do. Yeah, and that's so weird because this feels intuitive to me, uh, at least after I've read the book or when I hear actual experts talk about the complexity of life at the cellular or um, DNA level, like, yeah, <laughs> that that is such a complex thing. Is it because most people have no idea how complex the little tiny building blocks of life are that they say like, oh, yeah, you know, this, this theory about the bird beaks from the 19th century yeah. holds up? Is that the reason? I think it's two things. I think one is that it's easy to imagine these things uh, if you don't actually know what's happening inside a cell. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I look when I was a little kid, I I thought that if I, got, I had a box and a hanger and some bubbles and a little gunpowder, I was going to fly. I literally did. Right. And <laughs> so it's easy when you don't know the details yeah. of uh, principles of lift and whatnot to believe that. And so I think part of it's that. And then part of it is just the overwhelming mm -hmm. social pressure, especially the higher up you get in academia. Uh, not to challenge this. And so there's a social cost to it. And so we have a motivation either to believe it or at least not to challenge it publicly. And so as a result, um, you know, I, this is, look, bad ideas, get they, they gain currency all the time. And I just think that's what we're dealing with here so that there's both the social pressure and it kind of seems intuitive because natural selection at a certain level is intuitive. It's just getting people to realize, okay, but yeah, the examples that you know of, here that you're thinking of are actually really, really limited. If you want to get completely new proteins to do different functions, um, you're going to very quickly outstrip the capacity of that thing. And then this is only within biology, right? Like after you get organisms that can reproduce, that doesn't do anything to tell you how you get from chemistry to life, mm -hmm. which is the origin of life. And it doesn't tell you how you get a universe that's fine-tuned for the existence of life or that produces habitable planets or that produces consciousness or free will or all these things that we need to account for in the world. Um, and the, the, the sort of argument of people that are involved in intelligent design is just that, look, to explain reality as we observe it, yeah, you need natural laws, you need natural selection, you need certain kind, you know, these different mechanisms and processes and, and laws, uh, but you also need purpose and teleology. And if you don't have that, that you're going to end up over and over trying to use an explanatory tool that isn't adequate to the task. Whereas if you have a teleological or purposive framework, you can fit all of those mechanisms in and give them their due because they're part of the overall system, but you're not constantly trying to shoehorn stuff into these narrow explanations. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, like the you you outlined this, um, it appears in the book, but you also said this in your debate with Hitchens about how unlikely it is for life, miraculously, vanishingly unlikely for life to have spontaneously generated the way we claim it has in that you know, um, or pre primordial sludge, uh, yes. you know, billions of years ago. Well, and what was watching him, like you made that case, like, okay, look, this is very unlikely. And then he repeated the exact same argument and said, look how unlikely life is. Therefore, there can't possibly be a God. And I think as he was doing it, he was getting angry because <laughs> he was, he was okay. sort of repeating your, your argument. Yes. 
Um, yes, exactly. I mean, that was sort of his argument that if there was a God, you'd expect the universe to be filled with life rather than it being, you know, maybe yeah. just existing in one place. But of course, I, you know, we don't have any. Uh, the question is, you know, what do we have here? Uh, we don't, we can't presume that, okay, if there's a God, he would produce life lots of places. You yeah. know, I mean, all, what we want to know, and the way I sort of frame the debate with Hitchens is, okay, look, we, let, let's take two frameworks, um, materialism and theism, and just take those as frameworks. And then let's talk about some of the stuff that we all take for granted and say, in which framework do these things make more sense, right? That's not a deductive proof. It's just that, if the universe had a beginning, we know it did. If the universe is fine-tuned precisely for the existence of life, you know, these kinds of things that we find in the world, would you expect that more on a materialistic <laughs> understanding or on a theistic one? I said, in every case, all these things make much more sense. They're much more likely on theism than on materialism. And that's what you need. I'm not claiming a mathematical deductive proof. I'm saying, given the two alternatives, I'm a theist, he was a materialist, Everything is really unlikely given materialism that we actually believe and yeah. observe and have evidence for. And all this stuff actually makes a lot of sense if if you grant theism. That's a particular argumentative structure called the inference to the best explanation. It's not a mathematical proof, um, but it's usually the way that we kind of decipher clues uh, in ordinary life. Yeah, and I, I detect also a discomfort among the atheists in saying that even if you say, I don't, you know, I don't believe in this God with these characteristics. That's a, you know, because a product of culture as well as of revelation. I, but I, I'm willing to say something happened. And I don't know what it is. Even if you said something created, you know, there was a big bang. If we agree there's a big yeah. bang, well, like something, like you yes. can't have something from nothing. And I think they're very uncomfortable with saying, I don't know what it is. Let's call it, let's call it X. Because once yeah. you admit that there's an X, then then this you've all you've done is supply another word for God. And even if you say, well, this God doesn't wear a toga and doesn't have a, a white yeah. beard, you've still admitted a creator <laughs> yeah. with a capital C. That's right. I mean, it's yeah. Thomas. And the, and by this, all men to say God, right? It's like, yeah. okay. So it's some it's something adequate to bring about a universe that did not exist, sort of purposefully with these characteristics. Um, now, of course, as a Catholic, I think that we know things both from God's general revelation from his special revelation of himself. Um, but it's amazing how much, I, I mean, I do think that you can get to at least theism just by kind of studying the natural natural moral law and the natural physical laws and the fact that the universe had a beginning. I mean, to me, if you're sort of saying, okay, here, let's make the debate between materialism and theism, well, whatever your ultimate explanation, it needs to be something that could exist on its own, right? Yeah. It can't be something that came into existence. And materialists in the 19th century say, well, for all we know, the material universe has always existed. Well, guess what? We now know that's not true. We know the universe has not always existed. Um, it's It has an age. And if the universe has an age, it had a beginning. So suddenly the material universe is a bad candidate for ultimate explanation. And that's the most devastating thing that could happen for materialism, I think, it seems to me. Yeah. And when did this happen? When was the... the... Well... Yeah, so so Edwin Hubble uh, sort of constructed the the uh, the distance redshift relations. So yes. basically, observed uh, evidence that suggested the universe was expanding. Um, uh, Einstein, in his general theory of relativity, had actually predicted the universe should be expanding or contracting, though he fiddled with it to prevent that because it seems so strange. Um, <laughs> and some other scientists, uh, include, including Lamarck, who is a, a Belgian priest and scientist. 
was he's he was actually the kind of originator of the idea of a, a, a hot Big Bang model that the universe used to be sort of much hotter and denser in the distant past. And so that was sort of 1920s to 1960s when this whole mm. picture came together. And then the Big Bang, the word Big Bang was actually coined by a critic named Fred Hoyle, who didn't like the idea that the universe had a beginning, so he gave it this bad name. But the theory doesn't claim that sort of this big explosion, rather it's that the universe itself, matter, space, time, and energy came into existence uh, in a very, very ordered state. So this is not like a bomb in which you get disorder, but a highly ordered state uh, in sometime in the finite past, and then you get this, this cosmic expansion. Uh, it's not an explosion in space. It's the it's the origin of space itself. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. We've got about ten minutes. What else are the big points we want to say? We talked a little bit about origin of life experiments. Uh, you could say something about the fossil record or Ann Gouger's discussion of monogenesis. What do you think is? Yeah, I mean, all and so the book, of course, it doesn't just talk about biology. We talk a uh -huh. lot about um, uh, about cosmology, um, which is just the study of the universe as a whole. Um, also about the role of beauty, uh, the the, mm. the law itself. We haven't said much about that because, of course, moral facts are facts. I mean, the reality is that humans, even relativists that have a bad philosophy, will claim that well, moral there are no moral truths. It's all kind of culturally relative. They don't actually believe that about themselves. If their students say, "Oh, that's interesting," they go slit their tires. I promise you, that professor will not just be, you know, he will feel like moral indignation um and your your left-wing professor that will claim to be a relativist actually seems fairly certain about his his political uh uh moral judgments and so the reality is we 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 discern moral truths we know that there's just certain things that are right there's certain things that are wrong that's different from a truth about of a physical observation the wait, 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 wait. Why can't why can't that just be a survival adaptation that the tribe that does not go around sli slicing tires is the one that is more productive and survival? That is the precisely the Darwinian account, right? Is yeah. that, uh, and in fact, that's what Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson said, that um, uh, that morality is um, an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate. That's what they said. So the idea is that moral the moral truths aren't truths. They don't actually have a referent. It's not that it's wrong to do that. It's not that it's wrong to eat your children. It's just that uh, cultures that eat their children don't reproduce very well. <laughs> so they get weeded out of the gene pool, right? Yeah. Now, if people can say that theoretically. I'm quite certain that that uh, Michael Roos, for instance, also uh, held his moral views in politics with a kind of universal intent. In other words, as soon as you forget, you start believing that there are moral truths and they're yours. And so and in this, you just sort of have to ask people to be honest with themselves, right? Do you really think that that accounts for your love for your children, that there really isn't a thing called love, that children, it's not that parents ought to love their children. It's just that, you know, your genes force you to do that. People don't really believe that. And so you either yeah. say, okay, all of that's an illusion, or how about this? Maybe there are moral truths, which is exactly how you act and believe anyway. What would make sense of that? Does materialism make sense of that? Well, clearly not. In fact, I just told you what the materialist story is. It's just a, it's just your genes sort of creating illusion. Or is the fundamental reality, a thing from which everything comes, an eternal, purposive, moral God, a personal God, right, uh, who has built the world that has natural laws in the physics, but also moral laws that are built into the structure of things. And so this is true knowledge that we have of reality. 
Well, moral truth makes perfect sense in a theistic framework. It's very hard to account for in a materialistic framework. And it turns out materialists always end up just trying to explain it away. And so to me, that's just like, okay, so that's another reason not to be a materialist, because most of us actually hold our moral beliefs with more certainty than we hold beliefs about history, right? Like, you yeah. know, probably if you really are honest with yourself, think torturing children for the fun of it, you're more certain about that that's wrong than that, you know, the Gettys War of Gettysburg, Battle of Gettysburg took place or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you basically know that based on testimony and reading history books. You kind of have just direct intuitive knowledge that it is wrong to torture children for the fun of it. And so if we're honest with ourselves, if we're wrong about that, why do you trust anything about these kind of weird indirect claims about scientific theories? Uh, which you know, if anything, you know, I would say you'd be really a skeptic. You're wrong that it's, if you're wrong about your belief that it's wrong to torture children for the fun of it, why would you trust any other beliefs on which yeah. you hold more tentatively? That's that's how I'd put it. And that's the whole chapter in here on that. And that's where you get into um, into psychology, right? Because our, our moral beliefs are part of our beliefs, but even beliefs themselves, what the heck are those? Those aren't physical objects, right? You have beliefs about things, they're correlated, obviously, and connected with brain states, but they're not the same as a brain state. So um, when you, you sort of look at the constellation of things that you want to explain, um, argument is that, in fact, design and purpose just are much better ex explanations for these things. And it turns out that's 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 consistent with Catholic belief. And then there are these kind of complicated philosophical disputes about the nature of intelligent design as a sort of theory. And some people have said, well, this is inconsistent with Thomas Aquinas and his views. Um, and so some of us have spent, you know, some ink actually saying, no, that's not right. This stuff fits perfectly well with, with a Thomistic framework. What is the proof? Is the proof that if I do things that are ink, that are contrary to the moral law, I feel bad about it? Is that how I know? For example, a lot of things have evolved. Uh, Abraham yeah. was ready to sacrifice Isaac until God revealed to him we're no longer doing that. And maybe the next yeah. tribe over was still doing that. Or like we had slavery. And then one day the Christians in, you know, Enlightenment England said, we're not having slavery anymore. And the British Navy imposed no more slavery anywhere. And now if there is slavery, of course, today, but we all consider it a crime and we treat it as a crime. Uh, That's right. And, and so, is it because we feel in our heart of hearts like, oh, I am I need to help people, even, even if there's no benefit to me, even if they're on a country on the far side of the world, I feel better when I help them versus if I'm extracting their resources and punishing them for being poor, I feel lousy. Is that the evidence? Well, of course, know? you know, Aquinas himself deals with this. He said, you yeah. know, imagine a culture, you know, he'd sort of, there was this story that there were a culture in which everyone actually taught that theft was wrong, was right, mm -hmm. that was good, it was moral, right? And so he, but so what's happening here? Well, his claim is that, okay, we have general knowledge, like all of us have some general knowledge of moral truths, but because of the fall, uh, we can have better or worse, right? And so much of our knowledge of moral truth is taught, just as our, our knowledge of chemistry, right? We developed our knowledge of chemistry over time. We understand the elements much better than we did a thousand years ago. But we don't think that the periodic table of elements is a mere social construct. We just think we've gotten better at understanding it, right? In the same way, there can be moral truths that we get only partially, right? Yeah. Or because of the fall, we, you know, either individually or even culturally can distort those um, so that we we come to realize more fully. The reason I use the example about sort of torturing children for the fun of it is that there's just 
there, that's never been one, right? Like absolutely no one thinks, even if they think maybe sometimes torture of a person is okay yeah. uh, to extract information, right? There, so far as I know, everybody just kind of knows, okay, that he gave an example of one that everybody, and so if you know anything about morality, you know, that that's one. But then, of course, you can have a conscience that's overly sensitive, right? I mean, as a little kid, I felt bad if I left an inanimate object, lost an inanimate object, not because I just lost it, but I felt bad for the thing, right? Well, that's a weird kind of, that, that's your sort of moral intuitions kind of misfiring. And so just like you can learn to, an anthropologist can learn to read fossils, you know, human fossils better, uh, so we can learn through culture and training to understand the contours of the moral law better. And I, that's how I would think of it. Yeah, and then I think we have a fear of people who don't share those bases. Like the Vikings yes. were the most, you know, the, were scary or the Mongols were scary because they didn't share the idea that I can't kill you for no reason. They come in exactly. and kill you for no reason in a way that if you're having a war between, I don't know, France and Germany or something in some Christian context, they're not going to kill everybody. Or if they no. do, considered a crime right and, that's right they're going to consider it a crime or they're going to try to rationalize it i don't yeah. think the vikings bothered to rationalize it it's just like this is just kind of what we do you yeah know? they didn't yeah. Feel, yeah so that's that's the weird thing and i think that also often evades people like the, in the debates that you often have with um atheists is they think oh well look at these crimes committed by people who profess to be religious whether they're abusive clerics or terrorists sure. in the name of god but we all we all agree that that is a crime and that's, that's what makes it <laughs> exactly it's like yeah i the moral law it, it's true even when people that you know the defendant violate it that's sort of the point of a moral law yeah um that, that's marvelous um what are what else should we talk about you want to talk about the fo uh the fossil record and and what it what it reveals yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, that's because this is not at all my area. And so I'll just... Kind but of you're representing it. a body of work. Yes, exactly. And so the fossil record, of course, under the Darwinian, Darwinian claims is you would expect the fossil record to look just like he described it. It starts out simple, and then it kind of differentiates slowly. And so you start out with one kind of organism, and then you get organisms that are a little bit like it, but slightly different. And it's like this kind of an inverted Christmas tree, right? And everybody's seen that. It's the one picture that was in the origin of species is this sort of tree of life. Uh, that's not what, and also you would expect a kind of continuity in the fossil record, right? In which you see these kind of transitional forms. That's not what we get. You know, we've got um, this weird event called the Cambrian explosion in which you get the, just the, uh, the geological sudden appearance of major animal body plans at the level of the phyla. So these higher order taxa, right, appearing all at once and then variation within those over time. It's exactly mm -hmm. the opposite. And remember, Darwin is supposed to start out similar and get more different. The, the Cambrian explosion, you get all these major different animal body plants yeah. appearing at once, and then uh, variations within those larger groupings. And so that's just completely contrary to what Darwin expected. For a long time, Darwin said, well, as we study, we find more of the fossil record, we'll fill that in. That hasn't happened. It's just got <laughs> confirmed. And then, of course, the obvious lack of continuity that you'll, you, you can, if you're, if you're creative, you can kind of construct these things into uh, trees. Uh, of continuity, but that's not at all what, you know, if you were to have predicted in 1859 what we would find in the fossil record, given Darwinian theory, um, it's just not it. And so what yeah. you get instead is a lot of rationalizations for why it doesn't look like what Darwin would have expected, but that it doesn't matter anyway. And so that's, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, that, that's just the kind of bitter reality. I mean, it's it's amazing that we have 
geological processes that preserve the history of life, it's really great to have that. But if anything, it's telling us, okay, you probably need a better story. Yeah. Note though that even if we had this perfectly continuous fossil record uh, described as Darwin, you know, assumed, all that would do is give us evidence of common ancestry and kind of a gradual unfolding. It wouldn't tell us if natural selection and random genetic mutation were the mechanism for that, right? Because you could have, it could just be the result of a teleological unfolding of something that was sort of built in from the beginning. And so the fossil record by itself doesn't tell us anything about the adequacy of the mechanism. And I think in terms of importance, we should focus as much focus on that mechanism rather than common ancestry, because yeah. common ancestry is consistent with theism and materialism. But Darwin's mechanism is sort of it's sort of required that it explain everything if you're a materialist. Where as if you're not a materialist, it's like you're fine. Let's see how much it can ex- actually explain. But I don't have any any stake in overselling it. No, and that's such a lovely point. And you use the word story a few times. And when we understand the universe, we think of it as a story, just like I think of my own life as a story. It really bothered Hitchens that the universe would come to an end. Whereas from a Christian point of view, of course, it's going to—it's the end of the story. My life is going to come to an end. That's not a right. horror for me. I expect to go to the next adventure. And that's, that's not right. something we're afraid of. No, that's exactly right. And I mean, the reality is um, all those things, the, really the way to think it, sometimes people get themselves into kind of a skeptical pickle because they want kind of deductive proof of absolutely everything. But look, we live our lives constantly saying, okay, what's the best explanation for this kind of thing? And if you use that kind of standard, we've got lots of evidence that makes way more sense on a theistic and a Christian and a Catholic interpretation. The materialists have to say all sorts of really crazy things to explain away the fact that on their terms, everything just kind of popped into existence uncaused out of nothing sometime in the past. To me, that's like that's a really good reason not to be a materialist, you know. And so the temptation, because they tend to occupy the commanding heights of culture and academia, is to oh fear that they sort of know something that we don't. That I think is a weird and kind of temporary anomaly of the time in which we live. But I think the explanatory power of materialism has always been bad. And I think there's never been a better time to be a Catholic than an atheist than right now. Because remember, we live at the time when we have empirical evidence that the universe had a beginning. No one no, no one had that before the 20th century. We get to live at a time uh, when everybody sort of has to grant that. And that, that's good news. Amen. Well, that is the perfect last word. Let me say the book is called God's Grandeur, The Catholic Case for Intelligent Design. It's edited by Ann Gouger, the biologist, PhD. And uh, Jay Richards wrote for it and, a, and dozens of other brilliant theologians and scholars. Um, I know we tried to do something impossible, which is talk about the history of the universe in less than an hour from the tiniest cell to the cosmos itself. So I just want to say thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, would you like to close in a prayer or a blessing? For Absolutely. Yeah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the grandeur of this world. I pray you give us all just a, a little more insight and clarity of vision to be able to see the way in which you've worked, both in the construction and maintenance of this world and the cosmos as a whole, and in our individual lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross, be born for me. The babe, the son of Mary. 
Christo Diniz and Jay Richards recorded this conversation, episode 73, on November 2nd, 2023. That is All Souls Day, El Dia de los Muertos. And we pray for our departed, for all people who have gone home. And we pray for the thousands of innocent Israelis and Palestinians and their families. And we pray for Ukraine and for suffering people everywhere. And on that note, here is our update, live from Israel, with Father Piotr Zelasko, uh, which I recorded two weeks later on November 16th. So good afternoon, Father Piotr. Thank you so much for talking with me for a few minutes and telling me about your life in Israel. Hi, Chris. Hello to all your listeners. Thank you for hosting me. Yes, my great pleasure. So a month ago we spoke and Joe Biden was over there meeting with uh, the leaders of Israel. Uh, now it's um, November 17th, November 16th, I think. And Joe Biden is right here in San Francisco with Xi Jinping. The world uh, is ex is getting very complicated very fast. And um, tensions are extremely high. We are all following very closely as the IDF has uh, taken over northern Gaza and is rooting out Hamas leaders underneath the Ashifa hospital. And people feel very strongly on both sides here in the United States. And I can only imagine it's 10 times more dramatic and problematic in the Holy Land. Well, of course, I have to tell you there is some tension, although Jerusalem is quite... Okay, I always uh, make jokes to my friends who ask me, how are you in Jerusalem? I always say this is the, the most protected place in Israel. The government is here, the parliament and the holy places. So, but uh, yeah, we feel the tension, especially here in Israel. There is a big disappointment about the fact that Israel lost the status of a, a victim in this conflict. And some people say Israel is losing this media war about who is right, which I don't agree with because, you know, all the leaders of the democratic countries, they show strong support to Israel. And I can understand there is some uh, demonstrations against and there is uh, uh, crowds on the streets in some places in the world. However, we need to see who is representing the democratic countries. It's their uh, legally chosen leaders and governments, and they are still standing with Israel. So, uh, well, of course, uh, we need to be careful of how the war is uh, is uh, pro progressing. And uh, from what I see in the Israeli media, the, the army is trying to do everything to avoid any unnecessary civilian victims. As I think that's I think that's exactly the point that needs to be emphasized. Um, it's it's a point I make with with my students at the school where I teach. Um, but the fact remains that there's thousands of innocent people right in between the villains uh, who are hiding behind them as human shields and the IDF, which is trying to get to those people. And and so there's so many images of you know children in rubble and and destruction. Um, and so I, I try to remind my students, look, the IDF has made this corridor and it's trying to bring incubators to hospitals and it's making efforts. Um, are there voices in Israel that's saying, like, actually, we shouldn't even be doing this at all? This is uh, there is there another solution or they've they've tried everything else. And we all watched um, Yasser Arafat and Ahud Barak 20 years ago trying to make a two state solution. And 
the, the Palestinians at that time said no. Is there any is Israel? What's that? Israel is like this is all um, a fairy tale that people are telling themselves in the West because they don't understand our local history, or how how is that discussion? Well, I would say of the Israeli society is divided, and there is a group of people, of course saying cease the fire now and uh, search for other solutions however in the majority is supporting the the operation and the, and, and the military activities and again most of the people just like me we we say we are not experts of the military solutions we don't know how to do the war and let's believe that uh, the idf is doing everything to avoid the the unnecessary victims uh, and that's that's all we can do. I mean, what else uh, can be done? Uh, is the ceasefire the best solution now? Where Hamas, when Hamas wants to regroup, uh, hide, maybe run away to the southern Gaza, maybe uh, go down to the tunnels, and 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 you know the, the the ceasefire would give them time and maybe possibilities to strike back to strike back. I don't know these things. This we need to receive what we uh, what we get in the in the media. But the fact is, um, when people call around the world that Israel is committing war crimes, I always say, look at the definition. What is a war crime? You know, first of all, there is no war during which there is no war crimes. Okay which doesn't justify anything. Second of all, the war crimes need to be um, analyzed um, by a neutral commission, people who have all the facts and they can say whether something was a war crime or not. In this case, uh, it's too early to say something, okay? many In many situations, like this morning, I read about the operation in one of the hospitals in Gaza, uh, it's too early to say uh, what's going on. Okay, let's wait. In in case there the, there are such situations, it must be analyzed and and it must go out to the light. But let's not judge before we have all the facts. Okay, and I think history might give uh, in the future some right to the Israeli army that is trying really hard to protect the civilians and their own um, government, which is dominated by, by Hamas, doesn't care about them as much. And yeah, well, I mean, history will judge it. But in this moment, some of my friends, for example, for example, accuse me, why are you on the side of Israel? It's like in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict being on the Russian side. And I don't agree with this. You know, Ukraine never attacked Russia. Ukraine just wanted to be a country, independent country. Russians entered and started to occupy some territories in the in the Ukraine. In this case, here we have a, a, a terrible, terrible attack of uh, Hamas uh, to the integrity of Israel, and the reaction is uh, Israel decided to destroy this uh, terrorist organization completely. And uh, yeah, this is not an easy issue, but I am assuring you, uh, I pray every day and bless my kids that are in the army. We try to be in contact with them. We gave them little gifts and uh, 
little cards maybe before the Christmas. It will be again possible to meet some of them, to give them some Christmas gifts. But first of all, to assure them, we pray that they will be home soon. And this is our wish for them. May God protect them. And, and you know, it's 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 not easy because those are our kids and their mothers are, are really in 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 I'm afraid of them and and I can understand it. I also had the, the occasion to meet a few families of the of the hostages. Hmm. Uh, I don't know why there is not so much in the world media about two hundred forty or more hostages yeah. taken to Gaza, and I I could see even. Uh, some uh, movies taken by the terrorists of a young man uh, with his ha- hand cut off, taken to a pickup uh, car and taken. That's the last time his family could see him. That was uh, more than 30 days ago. And I could, this was terrible to, to listen to the story of young men who said he lost He's uh, both parents, and now he's uh, trying to get the world's attention at the fact uh, to, that his uncle and his aunt and their um, uh, children with uh, two little kids are also taken as hostages, and there is no uh, news about them. They don't even know whether they are alive, and the Red Cross uh, cannot... Uh, give any information because uh, Hamas doesn't allow anybody to to get there and this is really terrible we are trying to pray I received the the list of the names of all the hostages or at least we think these that are identified somehow that they are hostages again without any knowledge whether they are alive there's so many kids among them and I sent this list also to um, our uh, to the monastery of the sisters. They also promised to pray for them. Um, yeah, this is what we can do. We pray and mm-hmm. may this finally uh, be finished. Yeah, amen. And um, I think you really put your finger on the difference, which is intention. We we know that everybody's going to die on this planet, but how we die and at whose hands and when. And uh, there, there is in the catechism a doctrine of just war when it's okay to defend yourself, when it's okay to avoid uh, damages where you can find it. And here's a case where one side is deliberately trying to torture and um, humiliate and uh, attack civilians, and the other side is trying to avoid doing that while trying to prosecute a war. And of course, it's messy, and of course, it's inaccurate, and accidents happen. But the character of the two sides is very different. Uh, does uh, does our leadership, does the Cardinal Pizzavalla or the Holy Father in Rome, do they do they have a political view, or do they just say, no, we're you know we're going to pray because we believe in prayer and let the politicians do their best? Well, I I know it for sure from my personal meetings with Cardinal Pizzavalla that he himself and of course the Holy See, uh, the Vatican diplomacy are doing a lot in silence. This is much more efficient than, you know, standing in front of the journalists and saying we are trying to do this or that. And I believe that they have uh, some contacts and then they are trying to do everything possible 
uh, first of all, to re release the hostages, second of all, to stop the uh, unnecessary uh, killing of unnecessary victims, civilians, innocent people. But uh, what are they doing exactly needs to be also a secret of diplomacy, you know. But I, I strongly believe that those hidden activities are much more efficient than, you know, like uh, talking about it. So I support uh, my boss here. And I know that the Holy Father is uh, calling on and on personally or through uh, the members of the diplomatic uh, corps of Vatican, uh, calling both uh, Cardinal Pizzaballa and the uh, parish in Gaza. And the Cardinal is also in contact with Israeli government. Uh, I don't know how it looks like whether there is a contact with Hamas through Qatar or through Egypt. As far as I know, Hamas is rejecting any any trials of, of negotiations or, or, or talks. But again, these are only my 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 guesses. I, I don't know anything for sure. I know for sure that there are some uh, under, uh, how do you say, like covered underground, mm -hmm. uh, invisible for the public opinion uh, activities, diplomatic activities in order to do something. Yeah. What else um, should people know uh, around the world about your life right now in Israel and um, how things are going? Have we said everything we need to say? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's so many people that are constantly asking and calling and sending me messages and asking how are we doing. I need to say maybe the expression we are fine is not a good expression for the times of, of war. Uh, but as far as it's possible, we are trying to be fine. We are trying mm. to find some some courage and some uh, hope and some light. It's not easy. There's so many tensions. Many people react emotionally. Many people are not rational. Many people uh, are also manipulated by different uh, social media um, contents. I would say to the people around the world, um, support the peace, of course. Uh, there is no peace without justice, but the first step towards this justice is to admit that uh, Israel was under attack mm -hmm. and that Israel has the right to defend itself and that uh, these soldiers are fighting not only for Israel, maybe even for more uh, people in the world, for the democratic values, for the values of freedom and uh, yeah, well, uh, don't believe everything you see in the internet. Don't believe every commentary and every emotional uh, content. Just try to be as rational as possible. Try to be objective. And as far as we uh, can, we try to be fine in this tense atmosphere. Um, yeah, well, we are here and we are not going to leave. Uh, our people, our parishioners, and uh, visit our webpage to see all activities that we are uh, trying to do. I just came back from Italy. There was an interreligious meeting, uh, meeting, and I was representing Cardinal Pizzaballa. It was a beautiful meeting, and uh, really people, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, we were trying to pray together for peace. So there is some light, some signs of hope. We are desperately trying to catch them and, and to to use them 
um, in order to to stay better in this difficult time. Would you uh, like to lead us in prayer as we as we yes. think about? In the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty God, we thank you for the all the gifts that you gave us as human beings, and we ask you your forgiveness that we are not able to live in peace, that we as humans hate each other, that we are trying to kill our brothers and sisters, and uh, please forgive us this and teach us how to be the messengers of your peace, the peace that first of all should be in our hearts, how to be the messengers of your real peace that, that you brought to the earth when your son was born here in this holy land in Bethlehem. He became just like us in order to teach us that you are love and that love should change our hearts. Teach us this and please support and give courage and strength to all those who are suffering now on both sides. Please be with all those who are risking their life fighting for freedom and liberty. Please support the parents of and the families of the hostages. Please give courage to all innocent people in Gaza who are also suffering. And may your peace be also our peace one day in this land, in Palestine, in Israel. Amen. Amen. Perfect. Thank you so much. And, uh, Thank you, please. May God watch over you and protect you, and we'll do it again in a few weeks. Thank you. Anytime, yeah. just uh, leave me a message and... I will be ready to tell you what's going on. Perfect. Perfect. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This episode should be published on November 23rd, 2023. That's Thanksgiving Day here in the United States. So let's all be grateful for this good life and for all the things we have, even as we pray for our sisters and brothers who are suffering so much. Let us all be grateful together for the love of God and His ocean of mercy and for our hope to be home with Him soon, whether it be whether it be in a week or in a lifetime. Amen. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Check them out at gscoasterband.com. And our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window at the uh, Monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain. And it's taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales. from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odiniets. Thank you so much for listening. I'm personally grateful for you and for this chance to have this podcast and talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and